This month, congressional committees began voting on portions of the $3.5 trillion reconciliation package, the vehicle for much of President Biden's Build Back Better agenda. In this package, Democrats included a slew of measures, including everything from childcare to infrastructure to prescription drug costs. Today, we're going to look at that last policy. Drug pricing has been a hallmark issue for both parties in nearly all administrations. So why has it taken so long for Congress to act? The short answer, because federal policy can be really, really hard to pull off, especially for causes that should unite voters and policymakers. The long answer, that's what we're going to focus on today. Welcome to The Deduction a Tax Foundation podcast. My name is Jesse Solis, Media Relations Manager here at the Tax Foundation. I'm joined by my colleague, Erica York, one of our senior economists who has been following this debate closely. Erica, why have you not yet solved the problems of soaring prescription drug costs? (laughs) Good joke, Jesse. It's on my to-do list. But give us a breakdown of what Democrats exactly are proposing here. What, What is this policy that has found its way into this giant package? Yeah, so one of the ways lawmakers intend to pay for the $3.5 trillion of new spending in the budget reconciliation package is by creating what they call healthcare savings. Uh, they estimate that they can get about $700 billion from that over the next decade. And the leading proposal to achieve that healthcare savings, and I'm putting air quotes around healthcare savings, is HR3, which would allow the Secretary of Health and Human Services to negotiate prescription drug prices under Medicare Part D. So what does that have to do with tax policy? Well, the the so-called price negotiations have been proposed before in the past, but the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office, the CBO, told lawmakers that government negotiations wouldn't result in lower prices for prescription drugs than what the negotiations with private prescription drug plans already secure from drug companies. So essentially, CBO said this is already happening, happening in the private market for Medicare Part D, and the government can't really do a better job of that unless they have some sort of outside leverage. That's where the tax policy comes in. Uh, Democrats have proposed the leverage or the stick in these negotiations to be an excise tax of up to 1,900%. And yeah, that's 1,900% on the drug sales of companies that don't agree to participate in negotiations or that don't agree to the prices that government sets. Is there really another stick that's used like that anywhere else in policy, or is this kind of a new invention? Not quite like this. Um, Typically, excise taxes are used to price what we would call externalities or like negative effects of things. So you can think of, you know, tobacco taxes and the harmful effects of smoking. That's typically what an excise tax would be used for, or there are proposals to tax carbon emissions because of their contributions to climate change. So this is really kind of a, a misuse of excise taxes. If we want to get into the the sort of weeds of, of what the drug pricing policy would do, it would require a minimum of 25 drugs to be negotiated by 2024, and that would grow up to 50 in 2025 and each year after that. Plus, it would require um, insulin and new drug prices to be negotiated. What the negotiation actually means is that drug prices wouldn't be permitted to exceed 120% of average prices in a group of six countries, which would be... Australia, Canada, France, Germany, Japan, and the UK. Um, Drugs with... Just kind of general competitors for us. Yeah. And some of these countries already have um, drug price controls. So that that lowers the prices that consumers in those countries face. So essentially, we would be matching our price controls to the price controls of other countries. 
Those prices would be used for Medicare Part D, which is how the government would save money here. And they would also apply to commercial markets. So um, they would lower the prices for private insurance plans too. Last summer, CBO looked at a proposal very similar to this, a different iteration of HR3, and they found that it would generate about $581 billion in cost savings over 10 years. That's not new tax revenue, so they don't find that the excise tax would raise anything. Because it's so onerous, it it does get companies to either comply with the lower prices or pull their um, drugs out of the market entirely. So it does save money for the federal government, and then combined with some other changes in HR3 that are a bit smaller, like capping price increases to inflation. Democrats expect that they can get about $700 billion from this. That's not a small chunk of change by any means, but when we're talking about $3.5 trillion, it's kind of not the biggest piece of the pie per se, right? Right. So so we estimated the tax increases that the Ways and Means Committee has approved would total about $2 trillion in new tax revenue. Of course, the, the net effect is closer to about $1 trillion because they also propose $1 trillion in expanded tax credits. So when you compare it to $1 trillion net tax increase, $700 billion is a pretty big chunk of change, and it would help offset the cost of all of the, the new spending they're planning if it works out. Other than simply money, is there a reason this is being tied in with reconciliation right now? Policies for negotiating drug prices pull really well with Americans in general, though when they learn some more about details, they don't necessarily continue agreeing when when they see the nuts and bolts of how these proposals would work. But the issue of lowering prescription drug prices tends to be popular. And as you mentioned earlier, we've seen proposals from administration after administration and from a variety of congressional lawmakers on this issue. But I do think the revenue potential here is a big part of it. And then, of course, during um, Biden's campaign, one of the big things that he talked about was addressing prescription drug prices. The the policy merits here are also a big motivating factor for why this is being included in the Build Back Better agenda. I know this isn't new for Congress or for health care. Thinking back to Part D, that was Republican only. Affordable Care Act, that was Democrat only. Here we are with HR3. Once again, we're seeing one party kind of owning this healthcare issue. Why has drug pricing been so thorny on both sides? I was doing some research earlier, and literally from any administration, you can look up the president's name, fixed drug pricing. There's some story about some speech they gave saying, we're going to do this, and here we are again. So why can't the parties just agree on something here? Yeah, I think they agree on the outcome. They don't agree on how to achieve that outcome. So there are disagreements about whether, you know, it should be a targeted approach offering relief just to the segment of the population that's struggling to afford prescriptions, or if it should be something broad like what Democrats are proposing here in reconciliation. There are also disagreements about whether the government should just be setting prices for drugs. Is that something that the government should determine? Should we accept the negative trade-offs of government set prices and price controls, or should we take a more free market approach to, to address drug prices? So I think there's an agreement that, yeah, let's do something on prescription drug prices. But when you zoom into what should we do, that's where the big disagreements are. What are some of the trade-offs of having the government negotiate or set the price here? I mean, not, not, not to play devil's advocate, but you know, the COVID <laughs> vaccine, I got it for free or you know, I didn't pay anything out of my pocket. Somebody did. The CBOs looked at this, yeah, to, to analyze you know, what would happen if HR3 were put into place or something like HR3. And they find that, yes, it would generate cost savings because if you force drug companies to lower their prices, it will save some money for, for Medicare. 
and for others if those prices are applied to you know the private insurance market. But it would unfortunately uh, also have some other trade-offs. Particularly, it would reduce private sector research and development spending within the pharmaceutical industry. And as R&D spending falls off, it would reduce the number of new drugs that come to market. So it might help to take a a big picture look at, you know, R&D and the pharmaceutical industry just to get an idea of what this could mean for Americans. In 2018, the pharmaceutical industry invested nearly $130 billion in medical and health R&D, and that's compared to $43 billion from federal agencies. So private sector outspends the government on medical and health R&D by a significant magnitude. And the CBO has looked at research and development spending in the pharmaceutical industry and found that they spend a relatively large share of their revenue on R&D, even if you compare them to other knowledge-based industries like semiconductors, technology hardware and software, pharmaceutical industries more R&D intensive. And then another important element here is that public and private sector R&D spending are complementary to one another. They're not substitutes. So if you reduce private sector R&D, it's not necessarily meaning that you could one for one replace it with public sector R&D because the two are complementary in nature rather than uh, substitutes. So CBO took a look at HR3 and found that with using very conservative estimates, uh, reduce pharmaceutical company revenues from half a trillion to $1 trillion. And that would result in eight to 15 fewer new drugs coming to market over 10 years. If you look at the, the baseline of how many drugs we think will come to market over the next decade, it's about 300 new drugs. So that means that CBO expects HR3 to cause about a 5% reduction in drug innovation. But there are several reasons to think that CBO is probably underestimating the effect because they use some conservative assumptions about how fast HR3 would take effect and what effect it would have on revenues. So other studies peg the cost of reduction in new drugs quite higher. For example, there's a study by Vital Transformation that estimated that there would be a 90% or greater reduction in the number of medicines developed by smaller and emerging businesses. And that would result in about 61 fewer medicines over 10 years. So quite a bit higher when they looked at the impact and considered different size of firms and whether they were new or established firms. But even if we take the CBO's underestimates, um, the outcome that they anticipate for HR3 wouldn't be a clear improvement for the health of Americans. And that's because the benefits of cost savings for existing drugs might be wiped out by the decrease in new drugs thanks to less R&D. It's the smaller firms, right, that are kind of making the biggest breakthroughs in a lot of these things. Yeah, Jesse, that's right. Over the last couple of decades, the ecosystem has really evolved and there's a growing role for emerging biotech firms. For instance, a record number of new active substances, which is kind of a technical term, but you get the idea, sort of new drugs, not uh, changes to existing drugs, were approved and launched in the U.S. in 2018. The number was 59. And about two-thirds of those new drugs came from emerging companies rather than established firms. And so that means that uh, there, there can be a disparate impact of these proposals on small and emerging firms relative to large firms. 
And taking that into consideration shows that the policies may have an even worse effect than CBO estimates. Now, I know the United States, obviously, is not the only place where prescription drugs are a thing. Do other countries have a system like this in place? Is this something that are high costs something everyone struggles with? Or is what's this policy look like elsewhere? Yeah, so the effects of drug um, pricing policies have played out before in Europe. Many countries in the 1990s pursued drug pricing policies there, and that actually led to an exodus of research and development activity and other negative effects for consumers there. So today, the U.S. leads the world on almost every measure of pharmaceutical R&D and innovation, but that hasn't always been the case And it won't necessarily continue if lawmakers pursue harmful tax and regulatory policies like these. So until the 1990s, um, pharmaceutical R&D in Europe was consistently higher than it was in the United States. But starting in the 1990s, Europe pursued suppressive public policies to control medicine prices, is how one report put it. And that corresponded with a shift in R&D investment away from Europe towards the U.S. And since then... R&D investment in Europe has lagged the United States. There was even a European Commission report in 2006 that sort of bemoaned the fact that Europe lagged behind the U.S., and it placed a good chunk of the blame on their drug pricing policies. Ultimately, I think the lesson to learn here is that instead of pursuing policies that have demonstrably reduced R&D and innovation elsewhere, and that would disincentivize R&D here in the U.S., we should look at other policy changes that ensure an ecosystem that encourages risk-taking in R&D and look at free market principles that could help with drug prices rather than copying these um, government-set price controls that have negative effects in terms of R&D, but also reduce access to new drugs. And they can even increase the amount of time it takes to get new drugs to market which comes at costs to consumers and their health. I think most Americans agree that being ahead of Europe is usually a good thing. Pretty sure that was actually in the Constitution. We must always be better than Europe. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I was watching the Ryder Cup last week, and which is usually golf's, you know, pretty tame fan base. But for that one, it's like the one time you can boo. And every time a European got up there, it was like that. But it's neither here nor there. (laughs) But HR3, does it, as it's kind of written right now, have a path forward? I know there was some drama with the committees last week when they were, or two weeks ago when they were voting on this policy. Is it going to make it in the reconciliation package when it's all said and done? Yeah, it's not clear for at least two reasons. Um, there were a handful of Democrats who voted against it in committee, which may spell trouble ahead for getting enough votes because Democrats have very slim margins to get this passed. There's also a question as it relates to reconciliation and rules in the Senate. So, of course, lawmakers are using the reconciliation process to be able to um, bypass the filibuster in the Senate and pass this with a a simple majority vote. As we've talked about in in past episodes going into the details on reconciliation, one implication of that, though, is that all of the policies that are in the package have to comply with some pretty strict rules in the Senate. And there's one component of the H.R. 3 proposal that might not fly. The Senate parliamentarian will have to advise the lawmakers on on whether applying the um, negotiated price to private insurance or commercial markets has enough of an impact on the federal budget to be able to be part of reconciliation. If the parliamentarian rules against that and they can't include that in the package, that could jeopardize the entire thing 
because if the negotiated prices would only apply under Medicare Part D and not in commercial markets, there's concern that drug companies could increase prices in commercial markets to make up for the lower prices in Medicare Part D, which is obviously not the intended outcome of this policy. So depending on what the parliamentarian rules on this, it it could also um, jeopardize its inclusion. I think the parliamentarian has made more news this year than almost any other senator. Definitely more than any other Senate staffer. Yeah, it's it's certainly made Senate procedure (laughs) come into the mainstream. (laughs) (laughs) Now, even if it does pass the House, does it have full Democratic support in the Senate? Yeah, that's not clear either. We've we've seen some of the, you know, the moderates that we've seen against other tax proposals also have some questions about HR3 and and whether we want to be, you know, setting prices uh, instead of letting free market negotiations handle that. And if we want to have the, you know, ill-intended effects of of lower R&D and less access to new drugs for for US consumers. As we discussed at the start, federal policy can be really hard. Is this one just too hard to solve or is there a way forward? Yeah, federal policy can be really hard. I think if if we're looking at the, you know, the policy of allowing these prices to just be set by the government, we're going to have negative trade-offs there. Um, If we look at things outside of HR3, and of course, this gets way outside the scope of tax policy. Um, so it's not really anything that we, we have research on here at Tax Foundation. Um, but there, there are other proposals to provide relief to people struggling to afford their prescriptions and to also look at ways that we can harness the free market to improve you know, the, the pricing situations. Is there any alternative option out there that doesn't hammer R&D yet could lower the cost of drugs? Well, I mean, so, so like within the tax policy space, something that, that could help here is making sure that we maintain uh, full deductibility of research and development expenses. If we let the change that's scheduled to go into effect in 2022 actually happen, that would increase the cost of making research and development expenditures in the U.S., which would have negative impacts here, too. Um, of course, that is currently on the table on reconciliation, pushing back that um, that change, which is good, but ideally we would do that on a permanent basis. So companies would know that their costs for R and D are not going to go up in the U S. And then of course, there's all the other tax changes that will increase the cost of making domestic investments, which will have a negative impact here too. Well, this is a very, very complex debate happening on Capitol Hill. And as we mentioned, this is only one part of the reconciliation process. So as this mammoth of a bill keeps moving forward, Erica, anything else you're looking out for that people can you know, keep an eye out coming from you in the weeks and months ahead? Yeah, right now we're, we're just keeping our eyes on the House and what the Rules Committee might change and what's been you know, already approved by Ways and Means, probably anticipating some changes on the international taxes and on the individual side in terms of what happens to the state and local tax deduction and the cap on that. So keeping our eyes on what they're going to do and what changes will happen before this heads to the House floor. And then, of course, monitoring what's going on in the Senate and how much more they might change it once it's passed out of the House. Yeah. And if people want to follow your work, how can they find you on Twitter? 
Yep, I'm on Twitter and my handle is Erica D. York. Yeah, I'm at Solis Jesse. Uh, to read more on this topic, Erica has put out a number of blogs on HR3 and this whole drug price fixing debate. Uh, you can find all that and more at taxfoundation.org. If you like this episode, shoot us a note at taxfoundation.org slash podcasts. Feel free to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. And we'll see you next time on The Deduction. 